Africa is a land with endless stories to tell. From epic battles, brilliant rulers, and the dramatic rise and fall of civilizations, join us on the History of Africa podcast to learn the too often unknown stories of the African continent. From the sands of Cairo to the plains of Zimbabwe, and from the mountains of Ethiopia to the forests of the Congo, find the History of Africa podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. After the Willoughby brothers' deaths, Charles II moved to install governors of Barbados who were loyal only to him. This change would ultimately prove disastrous enough to lead to the first serious rumors of American colonies seeking independence. You're listening to Rejects and Revolutionaries with Sarah Tinsolvola, a podcast tracing the origins of America from the Tudor era to the 20th century. After William Lord Willoughby died, Barbadians asked the king to select a colonist as their governor, someone loyal to the island who understood its needs and problems, and frankly, someone who had a vested interest in whether it was successful. Barbados was largely populated by former royalists, and they had shown their loyalty in not one, but two Dutch wars, giving up unfathomable amounts for the good of the king. So selecting a colonist as governor shouldn't be a problem or a source of concern. They also asked that the infamous 4.5% export duty on sugar be eliminated until the most recent war with the Dutch was over. They emphasized how much public debt they'd been forced to endure, the fact that this debt meant that the island didn't have the money to repair its forts or its jail, or to build a meeting house for the assembly, which was gathering in a series of taverns and that they didn't even have the ships necessary to prevent their Dutch enemies from blockading the island. The 4.5% had originally been passed with not just the expectation, but the stipulation that it must be used in part to pay the island's public expenses, and the king had illegally taken it all. They were struggling financially, and they needed some relief. The king listened to none of this, telling the island's residents that they were too much inclined to popular government already, and instead he sent Jonathan Atkins to act as Barbados's new governor. Atkins was a loyal courtier with both civil and military experience. He'd been a royalist colonel during the wars, and he had also acted as governor of Guernsey. In his instructions as governor, the king reiterated that he would be the one who named Barbados's council members, and on the advice of one John Locke, that any law not signed by the king would lapse after two years, quote, because the government would thereby more immediately depend on his majesty, so the island be better secured under his obedience. Before Atkins left, the London merchant group, the Gentlemen Planters in London, gave him a petition 
backing Barbadian requests about the 4.5% being used in part to pay the island's expenses, and asking that all Barbadian offices be filled by residents of Barbados, rather than irresponsible deputies of the king. The petition also asked for some direct assistance to be given Barbados to help it get through the war, and Atkins did present this on behalf of the colony before he left. The king predictably rejected it, but this was the first hint of what Atkins's surprising approach to governing would be. When he arrived, Atkins found Barbadians continuing their passive resistance to all royal authority. In one particular case, they had refused to admit a man named Edwin Steed to the post of Provost Marshal, essentially the head of the island's law enforcement, rightfully saying that this went against the colony's constitution. When they had no choice but to install him, Barbadians announced that, as head of the island's law enforcement, Steed's job was to watch over the decayed jail and just try to keep the prisoners in there. He had to try to keep prisoners in a jail in which they could simply slip out of holes in the wall and leave in front of him at noon with there being no way for him to stop it. When Steed said this was impossible, Barbadians informed him that if he wanted his job to be easier, maybe he should get the king to pay for a new jail out of the 4.5%, which was supposed to pay for it in the first place. And until that happened, he could just try. It was that kind of passive-aggressive rebellion that Barbados had perfected, and it was that environment that Atkins entered. But much to Barbados's surprise, Atkins soon showed himself to be completely on their side. The Willoughbys had been sympathetic to Barbados, but they would fight to keep the more belligerent colonists in line, even while they petitioned to England on the colony's behalf. Atkins, though, never argued with the colonists. He asked them to do things nicely, and sometimes they even did. For instance, when he asked them to repeal a law that was allowing them to defraud the Royal African Company, they actually agreed. They also agreed to pay for island improvements via a temporary tax on liquors, as long as they kept control of the money, which was an obvious demand because the last time they'd sent money through the king, he'd just taken it. And all the while, in England, Atkins was accused of fighting the Barbadian cause even harder than the islanders themselves, which was saying something. And in gratitude for his support of their cause, Barbados gave Atkins 200,000 pounds of sugar. Barbados had started to think that Atkins might actually be able to help them. They wrote to London merchants while he wrote to the Privy Council. A hurricane destroyed a year's worth of sugar, and a potential slave revolt was thwarted, and both wrote, begging for relief. And this time, Barbados kind of expected to get it. After all, the king's own representative was wholeheartedly on their side. 
but that didn't happen. In fact, Atkins' support of Barbados made Charles II even more irritable. He refused every request and now demanded increasingly detailed records from the island so that he could make sure that they weren't siphoning money off the top of the 4.5% without permission. And he demanded that Barbados support Antigua in conflicts that it was having with the French, even though he had split Antigua and the other leewards from Barbados's patent against Barbados's wishes and at the leeward's request. Basically, the French had started to move toward the idea of pushing the English out of the West Indies. The Spanish were at a fraction of their former power, and the Dutch presence had collapsed after the two wars. Now it was between the English and the French, and the English government hadn't established any sort of a military or naval presence in the area. The French had taken to entering English territorial waters without saluting first to acknowledge English authority there. And in Antigua, the English had fired on them to force them to do this. After a couple of altercations, though, the French had called their bluff, and the English had nothing, so the French had started to recruit the Carib population of neighboring islands to help harass Antigua's residents without provoking an international incident. They armed Caribs from Dominica, encouraged them to launch a series of raids on Antigua's colonists, and paid them for any loot and slaves that they managed to obtain during the attacks. So Antigua launched a series of counterattacks of the standard kill-and-burn type. But then, things had gotten weird. Way, way back in the day, Thomas Warner had been one of the first English leaders in Barbados and the rest of the English West Indies. He was long dead, but he had two sons. One was Philip, the son of his wife, and the other was Indian, the son of a Carib woman. Philip was one of the leaders of Antigua, where Indian was a little more complicated. Indian led some Dominica Caribs, but he had always supported the English, and especially Barbados. Dominica was supposed to be under Barbados's patent, and Indian supported that island's government. He had been good friends with the Willoughbys, he'd helped Barbados maintain some good relations with at least some of the Caribs, and he'd even fought on Barbados's side in the Second Anglo-Dutch War. When the conflicts with the French-backed Caribs had started, though, Philip lured a group led by Indian onto a ship, and there he had massacred them all. Atkins arrested Philip and had him sent to England for trial, but the king had sent him back to Barbados to stand trial. He ordered Barbados to convict Philip of this inhuman act and hopefully to send the heads of Philip and his associates to disaffected Indian tribes as a peace offering. But Barbados, despite not approving of the act, acquitted Philip. It wasn't their business what happened in Antigua. It wasn't legally their authority to try the case. 
and they weren't particularly inclined to cooperate with the king anyway. So Philip went free, and this incident was the beginning of the end for Atkins. Barbados started to see that despite Atkins' good intentions, he wasn't winning the fights in any way. The king kept increasing his demands for authority, doing things like appointing people to posts he had no right to appoint them to, and then allowing those people to simply lease out the offices to anyone looking to make some money. So Barbados went back to talking only to the merchants and not even engaging much with Atkins. And Atkins, who saw this trend and the fact that he wasn't really getting anywhere with the king, took his English arguments to the next level. He attacked the Navigation Act, highlighting all the problems that they had caused for the island and asking that they be removed with colonists simply paying an export duty in Barbados to fund the crown. On the face of it, this was reasonable. But you know, I know, and the Barbadian colonists knew something that Atkins didn't. And that was that the Navigation Acts weren't just about money for the king. They were the most important English colonial policy the foundations of an emerging empire. The merchants were also some of the most powerful people in England, and they wanted the Navigation Acts too. And merchant support of Barbados in arguments with the king had been predicated on Barbados's constant avoidance of actually attacking these key pieces of legislation. Everything Atkins said was true, but saying it jeopardized everything that Barbados hoped to achieve. When the king and lords of trade and plantations got Atkinson's message, both censured him severely. And then they demanded that he start sending a list of all Barbadian laws to England so that the king himself could go through every law that Barbados had ever had in its history and decide what to keep and what to get rid of. He also wanted maps and documentation of every single event that happened on the island, even as simple as a birth or a baptism, and detailed accounts of exactly how much sugar was grown and exported. Atkins now refused, sending instead another list of grievances. The lords threatened him, so he sent a few newer laws here and there, but he just started making excuses for why he wasn't sending everything else. He couldn't send a map, he said, because the only map maker in Barbados was a Quaker whose religious principles forbade him from marking any military posts, forts, or defenses on it. As for the laws, he explained that the assembly was refusing to give them up and he couldn't help but add, and why wouldn't they? If the king was going to leave them in a lawless society, there was no reason for them to cooperate with this. And he point blank refused on the sugar. And then, for some reason, the Royal African Company got involved. 
Atkins had just informed the king that Barbados's military stores were okay for the time being. And the Royal African Company wrote contradicting him. They said that Barbados urgently needed a supply of pikes, and the king rushed to send the island 1,500 of them. At the same time, he reprimanded Atkins for misinforming him about the state of the island's military stores. It was a bizarre little interaction, and it's quite likely that they were trying to make a case for Atkins needing to provide thorough documentation of colony affairs. But instead, they gave him the opportunity to go nuclear in an exceptionally sarcastic, vitriolic message. Atkins got Barbados's assembly together to draft a formal letter to the Lords of Trade and Plantation, basically saying, why would you send us this, you morons? First, Barbados had just told them that they didn't need military supplies at that moment. Second, Barbados needed guns, not pikes, because pikes rotted in the heat or were eaten by the insects of the island. Of all the things in the world, and they had asked for a lot of things. This was the stupidest, most wasteful thing that England could possibly spend money on, and it just showed that the king took advice from the Royal African Company more seriously than it did advice from the people who actually lived there. Did the Royal African Company think that it was the governing body of Barbados? Did the king think the Royal African Company was the governing body of Barbados? Was Atkins supposed to answer to them in addition to everyone else in England? He seemed to have so many masters that he didn't know who to please. The king's encroachment on Barbadian autonomy was ridiculous, and now it was leading to decisions that were just plain stupid. So maybe in the future, they shouldn't listen to anybody about what was going on in Barbados without confirming with people who actually, I don't know, lived there. And the king had no real response to this. It was kind of awkward. He sent Thomas Warner to investigate the island's forts and resources, but with no official commission, so Atkins simply threatened to treat him as a spy. The king demanded that a Barbadian judge be sent to England to stand trial for helping to undermine the Royal African Company's monopoly, but Atkins and the assembly responded, much as Massachusetts had a decade before, that to send someone to England for a trial meant that whether or not he was guilty, he would be financially ruined, and that wasn't right. The king demanded copies of the laws, and Atkins continued to refuse to send the older ones, saying again that the assembly understandably refused to hand them over, and also saying that he had sent all the laws currently in force to England anyway. And that became his turn to stumble. The officials in charge of the 4.5% protested a law that Atkins had never sent over, and therefore that he had claimed was not in force, and they were able to prove that the law existed. 
The lords of trade and plantations censured Atkins both for lying about the laws and allowing a bill that was so contrary to the king's financial interests to pass in the first place. They would recall him if he didn't give them every single law within three months. Atkins explained that the reason that he'd misled them was just a misunderstanding. It was actually because he had already stopped the law by the time the issue arose, because he had seen that the law hurt the king's finances, and he promised to obey them in the future and begged to be kept as governor. He sent a bunch of information, most of which he had sent in the past, and none of which hurt Barbados. But it was too late and he was recalled after four years in charge of the colony. The commission for the next governor showed that Atkins had actually had more success than anyone had realized. Specifically, he had won two major victories. First, Barbados went back to automatically keeping their laws unless the king vetoed them, as opposed to the king needing to sign off on each one individually. And second, the king wouldn't appoint people to offices other than the ones that he had already granted. Both of these were important, and actually quite impressive, but they also weren't enough. And the man who replaced Atkins was his opposite, Richard Dutton. I could find no biographical information about Dutton, but he has gone down in infamy for what happened under him in Barbados. He arrived in Barbados ready to assert the king's authority in a way never before attempted. He even asked for additional gubernatorial powers before leaving England to help him achieve this goal. He wanted to be able to pass emergency ordinances without the Assembly's consent and to prevent suspended council members from being elected to the Assembly. And he wanted no London merchants to be able to so much as speak at Whitehall on Barbados's behalf unless he, the governor, endorsed the visit. Dutton was going to quash the rebellion, whatever it took, but he needed the king to give him unprecedented power to do so. And the king obviously agreed. On his arrival, Dutton went to work, governing as one of the most heavy-handed leaders our story has ever seen, and certainly the most heavy-handed one since the earliest days of the most struggling colonies. The first order of duty was to raise some money to pay island debts and expenses, and for this, Dutton demanded the colonists pass an excise duty on imported liquors. They, of course, refused in part because the king owed them money, and in part because they suspected that they weren't going to get to use the money anyway, and the king just wanted to send the excise money to one of his many mistresses, the Lady Portsmouth. He had illegally seized the 4.5%, so what would stop him from taking the money from an excise? Dutton was prepared for this, though and he announced that he would only call an assembly session after they gave him the excise duty to pay for it. This increased hostility 
created such a deadlock between governor and colonists that a group of prisoners that Dutton had arrested almost starved to death because no one would pay to feed them. The compromise became that they would hold an assembly and that they would simply not pay any of the councillors or representatives. The assembly would be free, so no one would have to pay for it. When it came time to try the prisoners that I just mentioned, Dutton refused to allow judges, the council, or a jury to participate. He simply imposed the sentences himself and denied the people the right to appeal to the king. The assembly protested, and Dutton responded that having judges present at a sentencing was nothing more than a pretended custom. I have never, he said, heard that the king granted you a new Magna Carta, though you dispute all his commands as though he had, so I tell you plainly that those who obstinately oppose their prince's command, as you apparently do on all occasions, would, if they had the power and opportunity, as confidently make war upon him. It is an insolence beyond expression to imagine that the king should be bound up by the petulant and factious humors of some ill men among you, for I do not condemn all, to lessen or enlarge his commission. The dumbfounded assembly proposed a compromise, saying that Dutton could levy the fines alone if he would then spend the money on the fortifications that he was trying to get them to fund via the excise. But Dutton's answer was again, no, saying that once the fine was levied, the money was the king's, and he couldn't spend it without royal consent. Dutton had effectively just announced that he could be as uncooperative with Barbados as they could be with him. And then he went to work attacking every institution the island had, starting with the church. Barbados's Anglican church was being run by people who didn't hold Anglican orders, and it had been for the past 24 years. This is because virtually no Anglican ministers had any desire or incentive to go to America. There weren't enough of them to go around in England, so why would they uproot their lives and try to make it in such a harsh environment? That, incidentally, is why royalist colonies came to have Puritan-style churches. The South being Presbyterian and Baptist is a direct result of this. Even Suriname had had a Puritan minister who went to Boston via Barbados after the colony was taken by the Dutch. So Barbados's Anglicans had made do with what they could get, and what they could get was a guy who did the Anglican thing without the Anglican papers. And Dutton forced this man to flee to England and sent a letter after him informing English authorities about what he'd done and announcing that Atkins had knowingly allowed this. After the church, Dutton went after the schools, which were being run by Quakers and Baptists, who he treated similarly. He shouldn't have been shocked to find Quakers in Barbados because, in addition to the island's long-standing history of religious toleration, 
Charles II himself had banished the most radical group of Quakers to Barbados to get rid of them. This group was led by John Parrott, and it claimed more affinity with the Seekers and Baptists than with Fox's more mainstream Quaker movement, which accused him of being radical to the point of nihilism. But now, Dutton was going to persecute them all, Quaker, radical Quaker, Baptist, and Anglican alike. He informed the colonists that he wouldn't tolerate their former liberties, and he asked the king to send him formal instructions to establish an ecclesiastical court which would allow him to censure people. And when the assembly met, Dutton vetoed every single bill that the Barbadians put forth. He then identified the members of the opposition and kicked every single one of them out of whatever office he might be holding, replacing these people with those who showed themselves to be compliant to him. Militarily, he even went so far as to outfit the militia with English-style uniforms as a symbol of who that militia actually served. And this was the first time that that had happened anywhere. And he demanded money. He demanded an excise on alcohol, the proceeds of which he would control on the king's behalf to pay public expenses. The colonists refused, citing what had happened with the 4.5%. Not only was the 4.5% supposed to pay these expenses, also the king's behavior on that issue showed that they couldn't trust him with the money. If the king had illegally taken the 4.5%, what was going to stop him from just taking this and giving it to one of his many mistresses. It seemed likely that if they passed the excise, they would just end up right back where they started, but with even less money than before. Dutton refused to hear their objections, and both sides refused to bend even the slightest bit to the other's will. This only changed when Dutton announced impending war with France. The war never actually materialized, which is suspicious, but in fairness, there was clearly some tension as the conflict over Indian Warner illustrates. Actually, it's funny because Antigua residents had come to Dutton to repeat the requests that they had made to Atkins, and Dutton's response was to bluntly tell them that the people of Barbados weren't interested in the Leeward Islands, and that they, quote, would be well content to see them lessened rather than advanced, and that they would therefore be unable to help. I can only imagine what Antigua thought about receiving a message like that, but back to Barbados, the threat of impending war, whether real or feigned, shook the assembly and made them more willing to accept the idea of giving a bit of extra money. But they still maintained that Barbados needed to be in charge of it. And they said they were only going to pass the excise for three months, rather than the year that Dutton demanded. Instead of compromising, Dutton turned to blackmail. He had found proof that Christopher Codrington 
one of the most respected members of the opposition, had been skimming off the top of some public money. And if the assembly didn't back down on the excise issue, Dutton announced that he would have Codrington sent to England to stand trial as a debtor to the king. Codrington showed that the king was actually in his debt for £1,200 in comparison to the £579.10 shillings that he had taken. So actually, the king was still very much in his debt. Dutton said that Codrington would have to prove that at the trial, and good luck to him. This was a very dangerous position for Codrington, but it was also a dangerous precedent to set for the rest of the island. Pretty much everyone in Barbados was in a similar position, so they capitulated and gave Dutton his excise for a year, giving up complete control of the money, and even adding that a gift of 1,500 pounds of sugar would be given to Dutton himself. As Dutton exerted his authorita, he wrote to England disparaging the colonists and bragging about his exploits. He said that political incendiaries must be treated like mutineers, with quickness and resolution in seizure. He said that the island had been expecting the monarchy to collapse, but that he had disillusioned them and pushed them into obedience. And he received official commendations from both king and lords for these actions. And they even sent him money to pay his salary. Take care of your health, read the Lord's commendation, for a man so valuable as you is not often met with. They also agreed to Dutton's request to visit England on furlough. When he left, he left John with him in charge, vetoed every law the assembly had put forward, dissolved the assembly, and ordered that while he was away, Barbadians needed to figure out how to pay for a jail and a public magazine, but said they couldn't use either the 4.5% or the excise that they had just passed. And then to add to that, he said the assembly could not meet at all while he was away, and again ignored their protests that that's not how things worked in Barbados or anywhere. Wow, I think I hate that guy. When Dutton returned to England, though, he returned to his own legal trouble. One of those men that he had arrested early on was an influential colonist named Hansen. And Hansen had escaped from Barbados's decayed prison, sailed to England, and there accused Dutton of imprisoning him for refusing to take an illegal oath written by Dutton, which would have required him to witness against himself. Hansen had petitioned the Privy Council and the Lords of Trade, who now asked Dutton to make a detailed legal defense. And when Dutton did so, they found that the fine against Hansen had in fact been illegal, but that the original charges against him were serious enough that the whole case had to be retried in front of them. And then they said that if Hansen wanted any of his money back, he would have to have the case tried a third time 
in a court of common law. At the end of the whole affair, months later, Hansen and Dutton both walked away with minimal legal and financial damage, but Dutton's reputation did end up a little tarnished because, most notably, the legal battles had shown that he had accepted a bribe of 1,500 pounds from Spanish merchants who were trading for slaves in Barbados. Dutton returned to Barbados in September 1684, though, and when he did, he found that Witham had successfully, though with difficulty, maintained order. But when Dutton returned to Barbados, he moved to steal the half of the governor's salary that Witham had earned for running the island while he was away. The standard arrangement was that when the governor was away, the governor's salary was to be split 50-50 between him and the deputy governor acting in his place. Dutton wanted to keep the whole salary, leaving Witham with nothing for his service. And Witham, who was ill in bed at the time, refused to give him the money, saying that what he had earned for 16 months of service was barely enough to pay basic expenses. This had been a private exchange, but when Witham refused, Dutton went to the assembly and asked them how satisfied they were with Witham's time in office. And of course the assembly disliked Witham, as they did all the king's representatives, and of course they were happy to air grievances. But then, Dutton asked them if they felt that Witham deserved half of the governor's salary for his service. And that was an odd question. And the assembly started to see where the interrogation seemed to be headed. So they reversed their position and said that Witham had actually led the island really well. Dutton had gotten a couple of negative remarks, though, and he wasn't exactly legally scrupulous anyway, so he suspended Witham from all his public offices and had him arrested. And then, at his trial, Dutton refused to preside over the court. Instead, he appointed Henry Walrand, son of the old agitator Humphrey, and the man with whom Witham had clashed most violently in Dutton's absence, to act as president of the court in his stead. It was clear even before the trial started that Witham was going to be pronounced guilty, and Walrand fined the ex-deputy governor 5,000 pounds and sentenced him to prison. It was bizarrely over the top, and there was no reason for this except money. A panicked Witham wrote to England, sending a detailed description of the trial to both the Earl of Sunderland and the Lords of Trade and Plantations. The Lords ordered that the sentence be suspended and said that the King would hear the case. In England, Witham didn't just defend himself. He accused Dutton of a long list of crimes including taking bribes, appropriating public funds, and arbitrary imprisonment. He was able to show that the governor had earned, skimmed, or otherwise illegally obtained no less than £12,000 sterling 
in contemporary money during his time as governor. Dutton's accusations against Witham were proven completely false, and in addition to everything else, Dutton had also refused Witham's right to appeal to the king. No one could find any defense for Dutton's behavior, and the committee hearing the trial declared Dutton's actions to be altogether violent and malicious, motivated by nothing more than getting Witham's money. Witham was restored to all his offices, and Dutton faced yet more inquiries into charges of tyranny and misuse of public funds. He was soon recalled in utter disgrace, and this disgrace fell both on him and the king who had sent, supported, and lauded him at every given opportunity. The whole fiasco led to a rather interesting rumor. For the first time ever, the idea clearly circulated within England and beyond that England's colonies might separate from their mother country and form their own independent commonwealths in the long term. That would still be a few decades away, and Barbados wouldn't join when the time actually came. But yet again, that colony had led the way. This was the 1680s, though, and Barbados wasn't actually in the position to do anything. It was just trying to survive. The Navigation Acts had crushed the price of sugar as other sugar-producing islands started to compete with Barbados. At the beginning of the Restoration, A hundred pounds of white sugar had cost seven pounds sterling. Now, it cost two pounds ten shillings. Of that, four and a half percent went to an export duty, while one shilling six pence per hundred pounds of sugar was taken as an import duty. The duty had been passed when prices were high and remained stable. So it had gone from being under a percent to an additional 2.05% of sugar's total value. And then there were the taxes and the expenses like the excise within Barbados itself. And at the end of the day, colonists were receiving about 10 shillings per 100 pounds of sugar, which was barely enough to meet their expenses. Barbados had gone from being the wealthiest place in the English-speaking world to the verge of bankruptcy, and a Virginia-style struggling economy and taxation would only increase under Charles's brother James, Duke of York and head of the Royal African Company, who took the throne on the king's death. James claimed that his new duty on sugar would be paid by English customers But of course it wasn't. Barbadian James Littleton called James's statement a mere mockery, saying that the buyer, they say, must pay the duty, but the seller may pay it if he please, and he will please to pay it rather than not sell his sugar. If he will not, there are enough beside that will. Littleton explained that in the 1680s, foreign goods were now more competitive in English markets 
than English colonial goods were. Barbados's status had been reduced to that of Virginia, with planters barely able to pay for food and totally at the mercy of people whose primary goal was to get as much money from them as they could, totally unheard and economically helpless. The silver lining to this situation comes from a group of people that we haven't yet discussed in our story. Groups of Jewish merchants lived in every English colony, as well as London and Amsterdam. And these people formed a smuggling network which was able to bypass English customs and regulations. They sailed in unassuming ships, sailed to unassuming ports, and bribed customs officials to look the other way. And then they sold and bought at near-free market prices. It's possible that a majority of colonial trade was conducted by these people, but at the very least, it was enough to keep Barbados and similar colonies afloat. And that's it for Barbados and the Leewards for a few months. The colony, full of exiled former royalists, had eagerly anticipated and celebrated the restoration, only to see Cromwell's policies continued and expanded by a cynical and exploitative king to the point where they permanently crippled their economy. But that same English government was at work in all the other colonies. We'll take a quick stop in Jamaica next episode to see how everything played out there, and then we'll move on to the founding of Carolina. <laughs>